We're here at the Heartland Developer Conference in the fall of 2014. I'm here with Pete Brown. He's uh, works for Microsoft and the keynote speaker this morning. Pete, thanks for taking a few minutes to be with us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, good to have you. Tell us a little bit about uh, your role at Microsoft, what you do, or what they pay you to do, and then maybe what you do that they don't pay you to do. Right. Uh, so luckily, what I get paid to do is what I love to do. Oh, so good. They, they good, tend good. to work out really well. Uh, I focus on a few different areas at Microsoft. I work a lot with um, XAML and .NET teams. I've had a, a lot of uh, um, experience with them over the years and supporting WPF in the community and just XAML and, and everything. Uh, then I have worked with uh, creative apps and technologies for musicians. Uh, so uh, again, another area that I, I love to uh, work with. So uh, working with the creative audio teams and being able to work with actual musicians out there, um, some of which have been fairly famous. So it's been pretty exciting. Yeah, to, very to work cool. With them. And then the third thing, which was the subject of what I talked about today, is IoT. Uh, so I work closely with the Internet of Things team, primarily the client side. Um, we have other folks that I work with that do a lot more on the server side and the services side and stuff as well. So really fun stuff. Very cool. Uh, let's kind of take those in order because I've got questions for you on on all three of those areas. One, let's talk a little bit about .NET and with Microsoft. A couple years ago, uh, as an IT professional, I kind of thought .NET would be slowly going away, and in the last three or four years, it has really made a resurgence in yeah. the in the developers community. What's going on at Microsoft around that framework? What are you guys excited about for the future? If I'm a .NET developer, what do I have to look forward to? I think some of the most exciting things in .NET are the additional uh, devices that you're going to be able to target with that. So uh, right now, we have the ability to use .NET on phones and on desktop. Um, in the future, uh, we're going to uh, have .NET and some of the universal app stuff. So also JavaScript and, and C++ sure, for people sure. who like that yeah, yeah. Uh, on some of the IoT devices right. as well. So I think for me that's the most exciting thing. Um, there's just there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the .NET world that's just a refinement of what we've had before, trimming things down and making sure that it performs better and everything. But for me, the real the real big thing coming up is more uh, places where I can target that code. And visuals, the importance of Visual Studio then going forward. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I sort of I cracked a joke about it this morning where as a uh, you know, uh, somebody who works in IoT type stuff and who's done a lot with microcontrollers of all different sorts, I've had to use Eclipse and stuff in the past. And some people live and die by Eclipse. It's not my favorite uh, uh, IDE. So yeah. for me, anything I can do inside Visual Studio is a huge boon for me. Yeah. And uh, I showed today demoing, um, uh, deploying to the Intel Galileo, a small Arduino type board from Visual Studio. Mm. So again, very, very important part of what we're doing. Yeah. So as we see future versions of Visual Studio, what's kind of Microsoft's focus on the future? With is it? Visual Studio everywhere is that kind of the you know you can develop on anything in any place using Visual Studio. Well, I, I'm not going to speculate there. Sure. Not my sure. Not my primary focus. Um, but as a happy user of that, I would certainly love to see Visual Studio in more places. Um, I think some of the stuff that we've done on the Azure side for making it so that you can do more things from any device to to work with Azure will certainly help there. And then um, a lot of the TFS stuff that we've done making that accessible on the web, I think, is a a big deal. The, the, the big question is, will we make it so the compilers and the IDE work on non-Windows devices? Hard to tell. Uh, mm. Satya is very into yeah. supporting lots of different platforms and lots of devices, so I certainly wouldn't rule it off the table. The yeah, table. it's been interesting to see the change there at Microsoft, and now it was now it's Windows or it's Office everywhere. We want it on everything and every on every platform. Um, and that's been great. I, from an enthusiast's perspective, from an MVP perspective, it's been great for us to see that and, and the, see those changes. The change has been a really big deal. I mean, it's really nice to have the pressure of 
requiring everything to be Windows first kind of pulled back a little bit. I mean, Windows is still very, very important to us, but we can support Android and we can support iOS, and we don't have to be just about Windows, right? I mean, these the cloud services and um, clearly a lot of the IoT stuff is not really Windows-centric, but mm -hmm. you know, we want to make sure you have the best experience for Visual Studio and, and for um, developing on Windows, but we want to make sure we support as many places as sure. possible. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about that, especially with Internet of Things. Uh, there's some interesting things going on at Microsoft in, as far as embedding. Win what used to be Windows Embedded, and now we have, we've got a Windows getting smaller and yeah. smaller and smaller. Talk a little bit about maybe your focus or what you're seeing when we talk about these smaller devices. What's Microsoft doing in that space with the OS? Sure. Uh, we have a pretty broad array of things that have been traditional embedded that we're now kind of rebranded as Internet of Things. Um, you have uh, Windows Embedded Industry, which is really at the top end. It's essentially Windows 8.1 that you can use on an embedded device. And there's some interesting things going on there where we um, we just announced support for the Minnow Board Max, which is a board about, um, for people listening, it's about the size of a deck of cards yeah. for the rest of you yeah. like that, right? Um, oh, yes, there we yeah, go. There we go. I'm looking at, <laughs> yeah. It's not really showing it to the computer. Yeah. It's not going to help. No, it's good. Uh, so it's a, it's a small board, but it's got an Intel Atom processor on it, 64-bit. Mm -hmm. It's essentially a tablet this size, right? Yeah. Um, that can run Windows embedded, and it can be very hacker-friendly as well as very, um, you know, for people who are building drivers. Then if you go all the way down, we have Windows CE and a bunch of other stuff in the middle. And then we have the Windows on Devices program, which is brand new. It's something that we announced in April, and we just started deploying. And that's the, right now, just the Intel Galileo, which is that Quark processor that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Essentially a Pentium class from, you know, way back when Pentium sure. was first introduced. Sure. But they've shrunk the die way down. They've lowered the power requirements. Mm -hmm. They've done all the things they need to do to make it a pretty decent contender uh, in the IoT space. It's an enthusiast board right now, and we're far from done in what we can do on that. But we've managed to shrink Windows down, so it'll run on there with something like a 40 meg footprint, just on real basic. Like, we haven't even optimized it at this point. Um, but being able to run Windows on that and um, write Win32 code, as well as use our open source implementation of the wiring libraries. Mm. So we've got um, those out on GitHub so that you can write Arduino-type code and use a lot of Arduino code as is and run it directly on that device. So we've done a lot there. But as I sort of mentioned originally, our ultimate goal with those, as to be determined if this happens on the Galileo itself, there are some technical challenges there. But our ultimate goal with Windows on devices is to be able to let you run universal apps so that if you're a .NET developer or a JavaScript developer or a C++ developer, that same type of code that you can write to run on a phone or run on a desktop will run on these tiny devices as mm -hmm. well. Um, and I think that's where our, our real value with Visual Studio and with the skill set and everything all comes into play. Right. Same thing all the way down. You mentioned Universal Apps a couple times. For anybody who doesn't know what that is for sure. Microsoft, talk a little bit about Universal Apps. Uh, when we introduced Windows 8, we um, introduced the idea of Windows Store Apps, WinRT. Mm -hmm. But we had a real disconnect between big Windows and Windows Phone at the time. And like you had to write separate apps for both different languages and stuff. Uh, and we started to converge those things together. And we've been doing the same thing with Xbox, where uh, the Xbox 360, uh, excuse me, Xbox One mm -hmm. is running essentially a version of Windows 8 on it. Um, in the next version of Windows, we're pulling all these things together to make sure that you can run them. You know, they're all running the same operating system and the same apps run across all of those. At uh, Build in April, we announced the idea of a universal app. And a universal app is something that you write in Visual Studio that will run across all of these different uh, devices. So it's, uh, again, HTML and JavaScript, C++, which can be with either DirectX or XAML, mm -hmm. and then um, 
.NET, which you'll know, C Sharp or Visual Basic, uh, um, and also using all WinRT. Mm -hmm. Those um, that that technology, what we used to call Windows Store apps, because we've made it so that they will run across anything we now call universal apps, mm -hmm. and you'll still optimize the user interface for different platforms and whatnot. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. That's the, so. That's the universal apps platform that's coming. Yeah. It's here, right? Yeah. We there still are have. Some. We're a ninety some odd percent API convergence right now. Okay. If you want to do a universal app that runs across Windows and Windows Phone, um, Xbox isn't part of it just yet. It will get there. Uh, and then same thing with our Windows for devices is not there, but uh, it will get there. It's coming though. I mean, yeah. we're starting to see, especially on the Windows Phone side, especially we're seeing a lot of changes go on there. Yeah. Um, it's been fun to watch uh, even Windows change, Windows 8, uh, Windows 8.1, and now with the new update, uh, yeah. kind of really go through a metamorphosis very, very quickly. Uh, excited to see some of the quick iterations that are coming out yeah. of Microsoft. And the next version will be even better. You know, we showed some preview screenshots of that at Build, where um, we realized we um, how to how to put this delicately. <laughs> we maybe missed the goal on the desktop, right? Yeah. Where it was, a, it was an idea. We kind of over optimized yeah. for tablets. Yeah, yeah. Um, nevertheless, I mean, tablets are really the future uh, sure. for a lot of people in touchscreen sure. laptops. But nevertheless, we have a lot of desktop users. I'm one of them. Yeah. I, when I'm at home, I'm on the desktop all the time, uh, and we made it more difficult than necessary to do that, and so we're going to fix that. And we're getting some feedback from the community. We've, we've heard that, too, and as people said, oh, I don't know about Windows 8, I'm like, no, no, try it with the new updates on it. It's yeah. it's a lot like your old Windows 7 box, but better, and uh, and a lot of people have said, oh, yeah, hey, actually, this is it's, really workable. It, so the 8.1 update one is a huge improvement, yeah. but the big thing that we're still missing is a, a start menu that people be familiar with. Sure. So the intent in the next version of Windows is let's make it really comfortable so that people who are moving from Windows 7 find really compelling reasons to move here and are really comfortable. Sure. And then, of course, Windows 8 and Windows 8.1 users yeah. as well. And are you referring to Threshold then, uh, that version? I'm not going to confirm okay. any, any code names, <laughs> but yeah. All right. So. All right. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to. Um, let's move on to some Internet of, uh, of Things uh, conversation. You had some yep. gadgets up there. Yep. What, what are you excited about in this space? I mean, there's a ton when we, you know, Raspberry Pi was kind of, well, Arduino was really the first one out of the door. Raspberry yeah. Pi came along, got popular. I'm starting to see these companies come up with these little gadgets that you can do stuff with. What are you excited about? So there, actually, I really like the Raspberry Pi. Okay. So I think that's a really cool device. Um, I'm not really a Linux user. I mean, I can find my way around. I used to run Linux firewalls. I ran some of the original versions of Linux back when I was part of Boston Computer Society. Sure. And went to their show and stuff <laughs> yeah. way back in the day. Um, but it's not really my thing. It's the different tool chain, all sorts of stuff, right? Um, so I do tend to be more excited about what we're doing on the Windows side of things, just because that's where I'm really comfortable. So if I had to look at, at two different places that, let me say three different places that really have me excited there. Yeah. Um, starting at the low end, one, I love that we're reinvesting in the .NET frame, uh, micro framework, because all the stuff that's happened with Netduino and stuff GHI has done and everything, there was a lot of concern from the community that we're just sort of throwing that aside. Mm -hmm. um, we moved that team over into the IoT team, so they're now officially part of the embedded okay. group. They're no longer this sort of weird little part off of .net, uh, off the .NET group. Mm -hmm. um, so having them there and knowing that we're investing in them and that we'll have announcements to make soon on that, um, that's really exciting to me. Because I, I love working with Chris Walker and the Netduino guys. He does some really cool stuff there. Um, second thing is I really like what we're doing on Windows on devices. Mm. So it's um, 
the idea that we can show people that you can get Windows down really tight, because Windows does not have your reputation for being a lean and mean operating system. Not, right? not always, no. So not it's, always. it's never um, you know, bloated is a term that you hear in the community a lot and stuff. But being able to show that, hey, you know, there's a lot of optional stuff in Windows, but you know, if you really kind of tighten it down, we can get it to run on these relatively small devices. Not as low power as a ras uh, Raspberry Pi or mm -hmm. something yet. Could get there, sure. Um, but certainly something that's really low power mm -hmm. that, that you can run on that. So that's exciting to me because then I can still use Visual Studio. All my command line stuff that I'm used to doing all works mm -hmm. the same way. Mm -hmm. um, you'll be able to do .NET. I, matter of fact, I was able to get a simple .NET program running on there, even though it's not officially supported yet. Um, sure. Because when we moved the stuff over, we left the the CLR on there, just not any of the base class logic. Sure. Right? Um, the third thing is, I work very closely with a different hardware team inside Microsoft called Sigma, Sil Silicon Graphics and Media, um, which re you know, related to this. And they've been releasing development boards. And the first one that uh, we released was um, the Intel Sharks Cove, which was a board about this big, uh, paperback book roughly mm -hmm. size, right? Sure. For, for people who still read paperback books as a Half person. a sheet of Small paper. Small Kindle maybe. size, yeah, 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 yeah something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so they, uh, they have released that board as a board for uh, driver developers and companies that are looking to create hardware for Windows. Because in the past, they had to go through a, a really kind of special process to get their own development board, which could cost $1,500 or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. They had to buy Visual Studio, um, the full MSDN subscription or Pro, which was expensive. Mm -hmm. They had to sign an NDA and, and, and whatnot. So I've been working with those guys, and you know, throughout the past year and a half, to help target this community, we've made sure that one, the boards are relatively inexpensive. Um, you can get them from places like Mouser, so mm -hmm. you don't have to like go through any special right. channels. None of that request a quote crap, which yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we can't. You can't find them, and so you got to find them on eBay, and the prices are yeah. jacked up for those kinds of things. So. And then we made it so you can use a free edition of Visual Studio with that. Mm, okay. So we've lowered all those barriers. As a result of that. It's not just good for the hardware guys that the companies that are doing this, but that instantly starts making these things accessible to makers and hackers. Mm -hmm. Where the Sharks Cove is a $300 board, it's not cheap by any, any sure. stretch in that yeah. community. But the middle board Max, which we just announced support for, is $100. Hmm. And that's essentially a tablet, 64-bit Atom processor on it. So if you're the kind of person that would have put a tablet on a robot, sure. which they do in university quite a bit. Right, right. Uh, being able to take this small credit card uh, sized device, put it on there, and, ha and be able to run full Windows embedded on it is, right. is pretty huge. Yeah. So those are, outside the music stuff, those are the in the embedded space what really exciting. Yeah, I know, and there's some amazing, I, this is a great time to be alive. There's just some, some amazing things coming out that are really uh, working, you know, that really work in our favor, uh, especially in the tablet space and, yeah. and productivity space. How important then is C++ in all, for a while, it seemed like even on the enterprise space that yeah. was going away, it seems to be making, or at least coming back. Is that going to get more important? So, it, it's like most languages ebb and flow a bit. Yeah. Uh, C plus plus has always been really important in um, any kind of high performance apps. So, most of the music apps that I work with, yeah. all C plus okay. plus. Like, um, you know, some actually are Delphi, believe it or not, uh, but okay. other ones are all C plus plus. If you're if you're going to write something like Cubase, you're going to write it in native code. Sure. Um, Games generally all C the serious games, right? Yeah. Um, so this, they've always been important there, and okay. they'll continue to be important there. The, but microcontrollers and, and embedded devices, because of the nature of, of the size of the code that you can put on there and everything, they've always been either assembly C or C plus plus. 
for the vast majority of mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a lot of focus on C++ on those devices as well. And I, so I think you'll see a big resurgence on that side. You know, if we're talking 200 billion devices in the next five years or something like that, right? that's a lot of C++ code. Yeah. Um, we're trying to make it so you so that's not your only choice. Right. But if you want to run .NET or WinRT or something, you're not going to do that on the very smallest 8-bit hardware. You right. need a little bit more processing. Right. Interesting. Yeah. No, it's it's another uh, hearing a lot of that in the industry kind of come back and and where that wasn't going very far as seen before. Let's uh, let's wrap this up a little bit with your music side because this is yep. interesting. Uh, I know you're a Surface guy. Saw the Surface, and then when you're coming out. We had seen some. Uh, I had seen some music apps or some things coming up with the Surface. Maybe last year. Yep. We making any progress on some of those things, or what are you excited about in that arena? So we are. Um, I'll, probably a lot of what you saw was something I was involved in, which is good. You know, I worked a lot with ImageLine to bring things like FL Studio Groove, and walk, uh, worked with Jordan Rudis to bring over um, uh, MorphWiz and some things like that. Uh, but then we kind of lost steam a little bit, mm. and the reason is we have um, quite honestly some latency issues on the audio stack. Mm. Uh, on our platform. So one thing that I'm really excited with is I've been working with uh, what we have now is called the Creative Audio Team. We also have the Creative uh, Video Team that does similar stuff. I've been able to work with them, bringing in lots of different partners. And over the past year, we have had uh, calls with probably all the main, I don't want to say all, because somebody's going to be listening saying they didn't call me. Um, <laughs> You'll be fine. Many of the major <laughs> hardware and software companies involved in the yeah. music business. Yeah, yeah. And they've just been excited that we're even talking to them at this point. They're like, wow, you guys ignored us forever. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. Yeah. And we said, hey, what's your what's your latency requirement? What do you really need in the platform? And you know, we're trying to do our best in the next version of Windows to address as many of those as possible. Um, one of the first things that we did at, um, at Build is uh, Jason and I introduced uh, the new WinRT MIDI API, which is a MIDI API for connecting musical instruments and synthesizers and stuff uh, to something like a Surface. So we made sure that was our first thing. It was a Windows API released via NuGet, so that was a real hmm. experience okay. for the Windows team. They'd yeah. never done that before. <laughs> uh, and so we worked with, through that and able to, to get that out. And then we're just doing more uh, leading up to the next version of Windows. Um, and at the same time, I've been talking to companies about building apps, you know, what can we build for the next version. And it's my hope uh, that we'll have some really cool stuff uh, come lunchtime. Yeah. The next version. Well, I think, um, I think a Surface makes a great podcasting device yeah. in a lot of ways. We've, um, let's talk real quick. Go ahead. So the, um, I have a Surface Pro 3, which mm -hmm. I got, which is really, if you're a... Somebody who's doing um, musician type stuff, it's really the thing that we offer that's probably the best thing for you because most serious music apps are desktop apps. And then was, as we do more on the touch side and the tablet side, it has both, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be speaking um, as a Microsoft representative at an event in Boston at the end of this month called uh, A3 Exchange. And they have several panels which are music, uh, music app developer focused. And you know, we'll be there. So I think just the fact that Microsoft is having representation at some of these events and that they're interested in hearing about Surface and interested in hearing about what we're doing is, is in itself a, an improvement over yeah. what we had before. Yeah. No, it's exciting. And, and I love what's going on with Surface. The, the, there's been a couple versions that's come out. We've seen a Core i3 now, Core i5, Core i7. Have you experienced any any of those platforms uh, across? I mean, have you used all three of them for what you're doing? Is there any better? It seems like that Core i5 is the sweet spot on yeah. the Surface. What's so been your experience? I have an i7, uh, i7-256 with uh, 8 gigs of memory, which quite honestly has turned out to be a bit of overkill. Mm. Um, I really think the i5-256 gig for people who are doing creative work, 
Like I do, I do Photoshop and stuff on there as well yeah. as all the music apps. The i5, I think, is really the sweet spot there. It's um, it's quite a bit less. I think it's a few hundred dollars less. Yep. Yep. Uh, i5 is going to run cooler than an i7, yeah. so your fan's going to turn on less often. They run pretty hot. We know that for sure. When you when you crank the CPU, I mean, yeah. that's that's an yeah. i5 or an i7. Yeah. That's not a that's not an atom processor. No, or, excuse me, not, not a uh, yeah. ARM processor no. in there. Um, it, it gets pretty warm. Those boxes. It's such tight. I mean, the, the milling on that is so tight. Yeah. You're almost touching the CPU. Right. I mean, and they have the the magnesium case, yep. and that is itself the heatsink. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, think about it. like I have an overclocked desktop, and I can tell you what run that runs hot, right? Yeah. But this one, the fact that they're able to get that level of Intel processor inside something that thin yeah. and have it run without like melting is <laughs> actually screen. impressive to me. Yeah. Now I, yeah. I did see some early reports of some uh, temperature issues online and stuff. I know there have been a bunch of firmware updates that mm -hmm. have uh, helped fix that. I've never had it shut down due to temperature. I've had it get pretty toasty when yeah. I was doing some serious work. Um, but it's so far, it's handled it pretty well. Yeah, no, very good. And I think I'd lean towards the Core i3 version of that, but it's just one of those things that I had a Surface 2, I had the RT version yep. of, of Surface. I have that as and well. And my daughter loved it so much, she begged me for it, and I gave it to her, and, uh, and she's just loving it. She, you know... The i3 is a good processor, yeah. right? So if you're not doing the type of work that we're talking about doing or you know, encoding right. video and stuff, right. the i3 is a really good step up from something like an Atom where you've got... A real x86 mm -hmm. processor that can do pretty much anything else yeah. uh, that yeah. you want to throw in. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, we finally, that's, that sounds critical, but we finally got the pen working right. Yeah. And on on Surface 3, that pen is just dynamite, and it's just it writes like butter. I mean, it's just incredible how good that is. So one note is the killer app there. So I, I use it all the time. Now. It's pretty good. Yeah, and we go back and forth. We used, you know, we started before before uh, OneNote really went live, so to speak. We used a lot of Google Docs for yep. that. But I've been going back and forth. A lot of my work stuff is kept in OneNote, and I'm able to share that. And it's been a great, whatever emphasis they put on it at Microsoft, they've done some amazing work from the I, OneNote I use team. it for, so I'll enter notes on my desktop, uh, and then it's available on my phone. Yeah. So I use it for even silly little things like shopping lists mm -hmm. and remind me to get to -do stuff. To-do lists are great yeah. for that. It's And it syncs, and, yep. and for some of the work podcast stuff that we do, I keep all our podcast notes in there, and so I can get yep. to them from anywhere. We're going to podcast live, so I'll podcast live for Gallup Friday here from here, and I don't, I don't have to worry about that, right? Just bring it up, and it, yeah. it'll work just fine. Pete, any last thoughts, anything you said in there that you'd want to tell somebody as far as what's coming up at Microsoft? Uh, so just a, a little thing in general. So one of the, the themes and one of the uh, that I tried to get across today was the idea of bringing your kids into... Um, this technology more so, mm -hmm. um, you know, making sure that um, you encourage them to be makers and that, you know, it's not just about kind of boring coding, mm -hmm. but you need to find what I said their Commodore 64. Yeah, so I'm, I'm yeah. 40 some odd years old. <laughs> For me, it was a Commodore 64 sure. that got sure. me into it at the time. For kids today, it's these little devices where they can just go and blink LEDs and build robots and stuff. Right. You know, um, or it's something like Little Bits, or it's something like Raspberry Pi or whatever. Find their Thing that's really interesting to yeah. them so that you can encourage them to be in this industry and do really cool stuff as opposed to just, you know, the grind of... Because we know right. there's always a grind aspect of, of yeah. the coding. Yeah. Um, so encouraging them to get past that and do all the really fun stuff. So we run... Jody and I run a high school internship program for Gallup, and we are yeah. trying to get high schoolers excited about software development. I've thought in this maker in movement that we're having as well as things have gotten smaller, but... What advice would you give me as I'm running high, you know, I've I got high schoolers. We want yep. to teach them software development. 
But from what you've seen, if I were to bring one program in to have them monkey with something, what would you right now? What would you recommend? Oh boy, what program would I recommend? <sighs> so for a high school level, so for, from a selfish aspect, I would love to see some of the Windows on devices stuff go on there. Not quite ready yet for okay. that. So it's sort of like so I should keep my eye on it. Yeah. So I, I do think that's keeping your eye on it. And at the same time. Letting them know that at Microsoft we're actually doing stuff here. Like I had the same issue with musicians I spoke with where they thought, oh, we didn't know you could make music on Windows. We're really bad about getting the message of creativity mm -hmm. on Windows out. So I mean, um, being able to do some really cool things there um, uh, would be really good. Um, the little bit stuff targets a younger group, mm -hmm. I think, less so than high school, although there's some high school thing there. Although I know some adults who like it. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly one of them. So I think, um, I think there is a, some play there. Um, but really, I would focus on, uh, right now, Arduino, Raspberry Pi, okay. and those types of things, because that is where they're going to get the most bang for the buck. But again, I would encourage them to look at the full spectrum yeah. of, of what's out there, not just from us, right. but also just you know, from other companies, where yeah. um, so they can realize what, what all those devices are, what um, they can use to target them, what the different coding environments are. And because this is high school, expose them to as diverse a group of of technology as possible, because mm, okay. they're they're still Good making advice. up their mind as yeah. to what they like. Yeah. Where if you if you focus on only one thing, you've you've probably kind of hamstrung them a bit, so that when they get into college, like, well, I only know Android, sure. I only know iOS, or whatever things that they're they're going to be coding in. You know, they're at that age where they can learn pretty much anything. Yeah, I and mean, you know, we made it through this whole interview. We never even talked about Azure, so there's <laughs> lots of exciting things yeah. coming out on, on that platform as well, right? Yeah, I mentioned the IoT group. Um, you know, I work mostly with the client side, but there's a whole group of people that work on services that are building services for connecting all these devices, mm -hmm. and it's all built on Azure and mm -hmm. uh, very closely with the Azure team. And um, as you can imagine, especially with Satya as CEO right now, um, Azure is more important than ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's it's really it's become our um, uh, it, it's become our kind of our big thing inside the company. So th here's here's an example of where these these fit in. Um, there's a company in the UK that builds synthesizers, really nice ones. Like they cost about fifty two hundred dollars US, right? Um, they have embedded in that um, a small computer. I'm not gonna say what it runs or anything like that. Sure. Uh, but they have a small computer embedded inside that, and it has a web server built in, and you can uh, remotely manage it and whatnot. But they also have a cloud service. This is a cloud-connected synthesizer. They have a cloud service that they can use to transfer patches, to collaborate, do all sorts of cool things. So the whole idea of cloud-connected devices, technically that's kind of an IoT thing, yeah, right? Yeah, very much uh, but so. The, the idea of these cloud-connected devices is it. It's much more than just running your typical data center mm -hmm. server up in the cloud. There's a right. lot more going on. Yeah, no, and Azure's been amazing. I've I've been on Azure for a couple they're, they're years. They're not running now. Azure, by the way, but they same idea. It, it's been great though. I run my blog off Azure. WordPress yep. works great with it. There's yep. there's some you know, there's some mobile services that are available for you. They there's a lot of attractive reasons why to be on Azure at this point. So we're going to get them involved. The kids are going to get an opportunity. To Set up their own Azure service and, and have their blog yeah, kind of through Azure. And getting just cloud connected and you know yeah. building those robots and having that robot you know report data back up to the cloud right. is a really big deal and yeah. an extremely useful skill. As yeah. Well. No. Cool. Well, Pete, thanks for taking a few minutes to uh, to be with us. Thanks for coming Great. to Omaha. Always good to see you when yeah. you're here. Thank and uh, I want to thank you for watching this, and we'll have some uh, information, more information about what's going on in the show notes for this broadcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you. We're here at the Heartland Developers Conference Omaha 2014. I'm here with Dustin Tower, and uh, 
We've had a good morning so far. Dustin, welcome. Good to see you again. It seems good, you're it's a, good to see you. It's been a couple months here. I know. It hasn't been long. <laughs> Infotech, I think. I think. I think it was. And did we interview you last? Were you here last year? Did we interview you? Not at, not at the Heartland Developer Conference. Okay. No, this is my first time here, actually. Okay. So, well, welcome back. Good, good to see you. Um, talk a little bit about what you're talking about here at the conference. That's kind of the goal of, of mm -hmm. these, is just to give kind of a summary overview. Don't You don't have to give it all, but... Talk a little bit about why you're here and what you're talking yeah. about. Well, yesterday I actually did a workshop on responsive web design. So yeah. that was a little bit more uh, front-end, HTML, CSS driven. And today is the more technical session on, uh, its title is front-end developer workflows, but I'm, I'm focusing on Node.js, which is a good platform for kind of creating your automation processes and making that front-end development process a little bit more streamlined for mm -hmm. uh, developers that are used to a very streamlined process on the back end. Yeah. So. We talk about responsive. Uh, give me a give me a summary of where we're at today. When we talk with the with PC numbers diminishing, and we still sell a million PCs a day, <laughs> but, but they are diminishing. We've moved to some tablets, although that's slowing down too. Huge market in the phone. Responsive was kind of this going to be every be all end all. It was yep. going to work. Is that working? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it, when you look at the stats, uh, uh, desktop market penetration, as far as the number of people who are acquiring desktop computers, actually hasn't changed since 2007. Okay. So all those sales Flat. are people just yep. getting you know, replacing their computer, yep. right? The enterprise so, is full of PCs. Absolutely. So yeah. We're not seeing any growth anymore with. You know, PC on the PC side, mobile side, of course, is a different story. And uh, Q3, Q4 of this year is where the transition is happening between web traffic being or, or mobile traffic on the web overtaking the desktop traffic. So we're actually going to, you know, right now starting to see more traffic on the web that's mobile than desktop. The first yeah. time in the history that it's been like right. that. So there's obviously a huge need for our web presences to be mobile-oriented and responsive. Yeah. And you know the, the, the techniques that people use nowadays, it goes from either being a one-solution site where they have a single site, it's going to work across all the platforms, or they try to do a hybrid solution where they've got a website but they also have a mobile app or a mobile version of the site, and that's harder to maintain, and that's why responsive web design is really, you know, grown as it has because yeah. people want a one-product solution. But there's some problems with that still, right? Absolutely. I mean, where are we still struggling in responsive design as far as what's still not working that forces me into a native app? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, what it is is capabilities in some cases. When, when, when people want to take advantage of, uh, you know, high-end animation, they're trying to make games online, and you can do that now in a responsive fashion, but it's really difficult for that kind of interactivity. And why is that? It, it's if just I partially can... because, you know, you got to factor in all these different screen resolutions, okay. you got to factor in where things are going, so responsive, uh, while it can be done in an interactive and gaming side, it can be a lot of really difficult to maintain. Um, the other things that, that really give people trouble is... Uh, the way that they consume their services, if they're a service-oriented company, you know, for example, like uh, you know, Google Maps, you know, they've got a responsive website that you can actually go, but they have an app because the app just is more powerful. It's it's not built in JavaScript, it's built, uh, you know, in a native language uh, for whatever platform they're targeting. And so, you know, there's there's things that you can leverage that are more powerful on the devices still that the browser rendering maybe can't keep up with. But that really is changing now, and and uh, it it it's it's becoming less of a, an excuse to yeah. not do responsive. You know, sure. You, it's, you really should be focusing on finding that solution where, you know, if I'm on a website on my phone, I'm the consumer, 
I want to look at what I want to look at. I don't want you as a developer to decide, oh, you're on a phone. I'm just going to show you a couple of things from our site because mm -hmm. we're not going to show you everything. Uh, and that's really what we want to change because nowadays I view a lot of sites on my phone that I never did before because it's just handier. It's easier to get at. Yeah, and as the end user, I, I don't really care if it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just want to get to it, right? I, well, and there, uh, yeah. there's another stat that just came out a couple months ago that 65% uh, of mobile users download zero apps per month. So literally no apps per month, yeah. and, and you know I, when I saw that I was I kind of questioned it, but then I thought to myself when I, when I get a new phone, I download the Twitter app, I get all yeah. my productivity apps on there, and then I'm done. Yeah, I really don't download many apps because when I go to a news website and it prompts me to download their app, I cancel out of that and I try to find the content in the browser because that's where I want to be. Yeah. I don't want to be constantly jumping back and forth between apps and, and sites and apps and sites. Right, right. So, Especially when you're in an app, some kind of reader app, and it opens up the URLs in the browser, and then you got to like toggle back and forth between. Well, the and then Android know. asks you, "Hey, do you want to open this?" And you know, you know, it's just whatever. not that seamless of a right. workflow. We want that yeah. seamless workflow that you yeah. know, that we're used to on the desktop and everywhere else. And really, the way that browsers have been updated now and support uh, the, the, the technologies, the way we're phasing out older browsers, there really isn't an excuse not to be able to leverage technology. Yeah, so so like the native browsers, I shouldn't say native, uh, but yeah, so the native, big browsers. the big browsers, so Chrome and Safari on yep. Android or iPhone, IE on Windows Phone yep. at this point. The the progress is coming along, is what Absolutely, you're saying, yeah. so now they're, the functionality inside of them is good enough. We talked about uh, so one of the limitations in there is just maybe even accessing the hardware. Mm -hmm. But what about, uh, it seems like rich media. Yep. You talked about gaming. What about rich media? How are we making progress? Because as a podcaster, I'm worried about video and you audio. Video at work. Yep, right? Absolutely. And that always, video has always seemed to be the Achilles heel of, of mobile. Well, it, it is. And, you know, the video is kind of one of those uh, topics on the web, there's a lot of factors that contribute to the video quality and the way the video is going to play. I mean, you have the basic ones like bandwidth. You know, if you're on a slow connection, it doesn't matter if you're on a laptop or a phone or anywhere else, you're not going to view the video. Um, but how you deploy the video is really the game changer in there. Uh, you know, a lot of companies that want to put videos up on their site, you know, I, I tell them just host them on YouTube and embed them on your page because... YouTube's got the backbone on their server to be able to support the, web, the the traffic that might be viewing it. They also do dynamic streaming where they're going to give you a lower quality version of the video yep. if you're on a slower connection. Again, they don't care if you're a phone or a tablet or what. If you're not on a fast connection, they're going to try to give you an optimized version of the video. Um, but you know, outside of that, then you still have things like memory and RAM and stuff on devices mm -hmm. that you know, as we're playing media, can contribute to that experience. Yeah. Um, and you know, most of the mobile platforms have done a really good job of when a video is playing, it actually is playing not so much embedded and interpreted by the page, but actually off the hardware itself. So you know, on an iPhone, when you click a video, it kind of launches full screen, and it's really plain in its own little video right. viewer. But as soon as you close it, you're back on the web page. They're trying to bridge those gaps between performance you know, and then hopefully the bandwidth side yeah. kind of massages itself up. Yeah, and actually I think the best example of that today is Facebook. They, mm -hmm. in their app, now it's an yep. app, it's yep. not responsive, but in their app, they it's a real smooth, I mean... Even to those preview videos are yeah, playing the little, very. Like, clips yeah, that they play just, you, you hover over and then they'll play for you. No, yep. you know, turn sound turned off. What they're doing, whatever they're doing, uh, mm -hmm. it's great. I mean, I think that's a great user experience. Yeah, and and it's it's those kinds of things that you know uh, 
change the way that we consume video and are, and establish kind of new paradigms and how we want to view it. Yeah. Because I think that's the other key to responsive web design is, you know, I kind of stressed in my topic yesterday that, you know, it's not about taking your full site right now and squishing it down onto a smaller screen because there are things that aren't as usable on that size screen, whether it's navigation, whether it's the kind of interactivity you have on your site, if it's drag and drop. One of my, the classic example for me is a Google map being embedded on a site. You know, greatly usable thing on a regular website where you can go to a contact us page, see the Google map, drag it around, zoom in and zoom out. But in a responsive site, oftentimes the Google map is taking up the full width of the view of right, your screen. Right. And as you're scrolling down, the second you get to the map, you actually start scrolling the map, and you can't scroll the page anymore unless you grab a part outside of the map right. and scroll it. And so that's an example of even though the Google map can be responsive and look good on a mobile phone, swapping it out with a static image that people can click on to launch the map or something might be more usable. And the same thing with those video previews on mobile, rather than have to click a video, start playing the whole thing from the beginning, having this sort of animated GIF style pre-roll that's really low bandwidth and just kind of giving you a glimpse of what the video is all about keeps you from having to wait for it to start streaming. And you can, nah, I don't really want to watch that. You can yeah. scroll through it and move on. Sometimes I've watched the whole thing like with no sound, yeah. and I'm like, oh, good enough. And then you, just, no, and <laughs> you, and you don't thing, even like evoke the player. Clip or you, you, yeah. you, it, it lets you decide how you want to yeah. consume that yeah. content. And, and that's re that is responsive design. I mean, yeah. Even though it's an app, it's still a really great responsive technique to say, all right, at this platform, at this level, this is the way we're going to you know, allow the user experience that they can still tap on it, play it the regular way, but we're going to give them some other alternatives here. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you brought up, you made a statement about going to YouTube. And when I first started podcasting, I had that same thought. I was like, I'm not going to create a brand new RSS. I'm not going to do this. It's just go to YouTube, and I've actually, um, I, so my listeners changed my mind. I got a, some feedback from mm -hmm. a few of them. They're like, you know, we'd like to be able to download your video. Yeah. Yep. And so for whatever reason, in that environment, we still, it's not either or. We still provide it via YouTube if you want to watch it there. But I put out RSS feeds, and immediately I'm getting, uh, let's just say, 50 or so downloads yeah, already. The, the feeds are brand new, and I'm getting already a bunch of hits. It just goes to you know we're in a transition period I guess is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the way that, that's the way people kind of get into handling our you know increasingly mobile audience is figuring out what's the best way to deliver my content and 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 the way that my consumers want to see it, uh, and and providing that for them and you know like the RSS feed that you're doing you know RSS feeds have been around forever. I know, right? Since you the know, beginning of time. And and the, you know the great thing about it is you're just you just put a different skin on top of it. Yeah. You just kind of consume the yeah. content. And you just say, hey, all right, if you're on a desktop, you can plug this into whatever your reader is. If you're on mobile, great, you can still yeah. consume it. But you, what the user actually sees can be optimized. Well, for yeah. Platform. And what was odd is I have users who wanted to watch the video large, so about mm -hmm. 920. Uh, in, in that range, and uh, they wanted to. I could go ten, full 1080, but that's a you know, it's yeah, a little yeah. bit of an overkill. Yep. 
for what they're doing. They're downloading it to the tablet because they're in a situation where they don't have connectivity. And so YouTube does not provide still yet a great offline player. That would be awesome if they allowed. But then, you know. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's really one of, that's another one of the big things about the responsive movement that, that is a hurdle for companies that go to, like, for example, The Verge, uh, the tech blog, you know, kind of a spin-off of Engadget. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of days ago, they launched their new site. It actually looks the exact same as their previous redesign, but they rebuilt it to be completely responsive. They're getting rid of their mobile app. They're getting rid of their mobile website. They want one product for users yeah. to consume. Part of the hurdle, though, that comes with that is offline yeah. capabilities, and and so those are the kind of things that companies do recognize, and sometimes the reason why they go toward a native app because they can have something that runs without internet right. connection right. that synchronizes data back and yeah. forth. Now, that being said, the web APIs that allow you to do the same kind of thing just in browser have offline websites that work without internet. Uh, you know, if you ever bookmark a website on your phone, it saves down. It looks just like a regular app. Got an right. icon on your yep. on your on your phone. Uh, when you launch that, it can actually be running in an offline mode. Those APIs vary a little bit browser to browser. That's why it's not a completely standardized solution yet. But that's what will replace apps. You know, as that technology progresses, where you know when I pull up my website and I bookmark it, it will download everything I want, or every time I'm running it with internet, it can be syncing data behind I the scenes. I think that's the key, right? Is that key. control over the sync of yep. having some, like, when I want, and, and maybe even intelligent sync, right? Yep. Which is, how often am I acce accessing this? And then mm -hmm. it's going to set some kind of rhythm that tries to predict, yeah. like, so, hey, do I need to go every hour, or I only check it once a day, so... Well, it, how much history do you want to keep, yeah. you know, no, all right that on. kind of... And that's, right you know, that, that, the, the nice thing about that is that's not a technique that nice. is foreign, because mail apps do that all the time, you know, your note-taking apps, Dropbox, all these kind of apps have been doing this for years and years and years, and so the process of doing that isn't different, it's just applying that to the web and to websites that are going to run that way yeah. uh, is where things have to go. And again, it's not every case. Sometimes you need to have internet to use certain sites sure. and use certain sure. features. So, uh, like the stock market. Ex exactly. Like sports scores. Exactly. <laughs> the stocks from yesterday aren't going to help you out at all, right? <laughs> a cash stock price is not going to yep. help you. Precisely. So we, talked, so we talked a little bit about games. We talked some about video and uh, let's say rich media content. Mm -hmm. What else, what are the stumbling points right now, or the roadblocks on well, responsive design? The, the stumbling points is a perfect segue to what I'm going to do this afternoon with the workflows. And, I, and really, uh, back-end developers, you know, .NET developers, Java developers for years have had great tooling. You know, they, they're used to tooling, they're used to workflows that have been really well. And as we transition to front-end development, where it's not just making things look pretty on the web, there's a lot of JavaScript coding, uh, kind of, you know, have front-end, back-end, and there's kind of this middle-end that's emerged, you know, and that's kind of a little bit what my talk about Node is about, but it's trying to find workflows that simulate what you would do on the server where you're automating your builds, right now your files are done, you're gathering them together and publishing them to a server, but publishing them in a compressed format, in a uh, minifying your code, making it you know more optimized because the sites that we're building nowadays are being used in low bandwidth situations or on devices or in other places. And so there isn't a lot of tooling out there to do that right mm -hmm. now. Um, a lot of the things that we use are actually command line solutions. It's kind of funny. It looks like a little like we're programming back in the 90s mm -hmm. with some of the ways we're building things, but they're very sophisticated processes that we're using. And 
and that's kind of the stumbling block for people as they move to the front-end development side is our previous models of development still work, but they need to be modified a little bit so that we can actually create this content on the front end in an efficient manner. Yeah, we, we jumped through a lot of hoops for low bandwidth or no bandwidth mm -hmm. on the mobile device. Uh, we did a similar thing in the, in the 90s, let's say in early 2000, where we couldn't guarantee broadband. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we did a lot of that stuff. And then, of course, now it, it's almost assumed if it's yeah. going to be PC. Yep. We're angry if we don't have fast Wi-Fi. Exactly. Right? Oh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I got here today, and I was coming over Wi-Fi. I'm like, that's not going to work. And they wired me in, and I had 50 up and down. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's going to be plenty. Yeah. But right, it, it, and it used to be impressive. But you're like, okay, yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but are we going to get to that point with mobile, do you see, in the future, where it's less of a bandwidth discussion? Because certainly we're yeah. putting up more towers. No, I, yeah. I think I think it's you know it, it's it's it, it is something the you other know, they're, they're it's not far off to yeah. imagine a world where you're right. always connected. Right? Does that I mean, change things for you thinking wise? Is like the things we do today is that is five years from now? Is some of those hoops we're jumping through now going to just be a foregone conclusion? I, I, five years from now, I'm not so sure because I think right now a lot of what we're doing in the responsive realm. Um, while it is sort of standardized, there is still a lot of disparity from team to team. You know, you yeah. talk to one developer, they do it one way. You talk to another developer, they do it the other way. And they're all kind of the similar techniques. But so I, I think five years from now is a little conservative or a, a little, or sorry, a little aggressive in us having a completely different mentality. But I think it is with with the way that cloud computing works and the way that uh, we're, we're we're providing content to our users. The models are changing, and we're still going to have some interface that, they're, that the users are connecting with, some situations that we're not going to have internet connection, but I, I think that sort of online, offline presence um, is going to become more seamless. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, It's not really going to matter whether you're connected or not because of the way that we're managing data and because of the way the, the applications work. Sure. But we're connected so frequently that things are sinking without us knowing, and we're just always sort of up to date and, and, and living in a world where it's like that. So, like I just saw on Twitter today that I think it's GM announced uh, their, their uh, I forget what models or what cars, I just saw a quick headline that they uh, Going to have 4G Wi-Fi in all their cars that they're shipping, you know. So like you're driving around in, in a 4G connection, you know, yeah. basically. Yeah. You know, I mean that's SIM the, card. That's Put your SIM card the in. Problem driving between here and Omaha. You know, I pretty much on the interstate have LTE the whole way. I don't have really many drop calls, but that's that you didn't used to be the case. You're no. in the car and you didn't know if you were going to have your GPS working or not right. because it's all data driven now. Right. It's not, uh, you know, yeah. in the downloaded ahead of time. Well, and aren't cars a perfect example of uh, on, off and online mm -hmm. and being able yeah. to, to elegantly move between those two states yep. and for the end user not even know, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that's a, a perfect, yep. a perfect that, example that, of that. that. That's the key there is for the end user, they shouldn't know whether they're in an app, a website, wherever. Yeah, it's supposed to be seamless get, getting the information them, they need. We want them to get the information they want. Yeah, however in they some intelligent get. way. You were talking about your, about the workflow in the company. Yep. Anything else in there you want you, you want to highlight in that as far as what you're talking about? You know, it, it's going to be it, it it's like I said, it's a it's a it's a new way of thinking or a new way of working for backend developers. But it's funny, it's 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 really not any different than what they're doing. The kind of automation that we're using is the same automation they're using um, in you know Studio or any or or, or or Eclipse or whatever tool that they're using. Uh, it, it's just a 
a different platform to do it. So uh, it's, it, it, it's something that, you know, when I first saw it, I was a little hesitant into, oh, I don't really know if that's going to work, but now using Node and, and, and incorporating that in my workflows, it's really changed the way that I develop. And so I think it's kind of, you know, as, as back-end developers move toward the front-end or, or, or any kind of developer is, is incorporating front-end workflows in, into what they do, keep an open mind about what you're using and really experiment because, you know, the community has really grown around it, so there's a lot of help out there, mm -hmm. and, you know, the efficient efficiencies emerge pretty yeah. quickly through it. What do you, for your customers, what do you tell them from a web server standpoint? They're building apps. They're, mm -hmm. they're building, uh, not apps, but they're building responsive sites. Mm -hmm. um, wh for you, where's the best place to go right now? What do you like uh, mm -hmm. as far as architecture and, you know, there's this in-house versus moving it to the cloud. Any thoughts on that? On that? Yeah, you know, it, it, it varies every, you know, every, like uh, nowadays there's very seldom do we come across companies that, Need a website, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? right, right, or right. that don't have, yeah. you know. So whether they're hosted on GoDaddy or Amazon or uh, you know S3 or Media Temple or anything, um, you know, the web host doesn't really matter as much, you know, aside from high bandwidth sites that sure. need to have Redundancy, dedicated servers yes, and that absolutely. kind of thing. Um, so you, you know, I, I tend to tell people, you know. Stay wherever you are if you're happy with the performance of the server, mm -hmm. if you're happy with the traffic, if you're not having any downtime. Um, you know, if your server is having trouble, downline can't handle the bandwidth or the traffic that you have, that's the time to move, time to move on. And, you know, it's always easier to move when you're doing a rebuild versus, yep. you know, moving yep. an existing site. Yep. So, you know, when you're getting to the point where you're going to start, okay, we're going to redo our site, we're going to make a responsive website. Mm -hmm. Well, don't just think from a design standpoint. What do we yeah. want it to look like? How do we want it to work? Think also from that infrastructure. Are you happy where you currently are? You know, yeah. Are there problems with the web host that you're currently using? Because that's the time to change. Right. Um, but you know, uh, you know, web hosting is uh, there's tons of them out there. The yeah. Dime a dozen, but what it just depends the, on what you're using. What about the architecture though? On that, on that, how is that changing, or what kind of recommendations when we talk about what they're running and the yeah. and the actual platforms? The, the the kind of cool thing about responsive design is you know whether you're hosted on a Windows box doing .NET or your PHP farm, uh, the really the key to responsive web design is that it, it really doesn't know about your backend and okay. what you're communicating with. So so uh, the, the 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 buzzword nowadays is have APIs, right? So if you're a company that provides services to whether they're in-house or external, you don't know oftentimes where your data is going to be consumed. So you want services that spit out JSON data that you can consume, whether it's in a mobile app, whether it's in a redone responsive site with some sort of JavaScript uh, app that you have running on there. Uh, that API, that kind of middle layer that's communicating from the front end to your architecture on the back end is really the most important part mm -hmm. because uh, that is the interchangeable part. You know, mm -hmm. That's the part that we want to drop in there so we can switch out our UI and make it look completely different, but we aren't affecting at all the back end, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, and that this technique, it's, you know, standard separation of your UI layer from mm -hmm. your data layer. That's nothing new you know, yeah. nowadays, but it's even more evident um, that we want to have that separation so that we can start incorporating uh, what we're building or what we have built into different, you know, mediums and different views, yeah. different platforms. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. You know, we I just interviewed a company called Zapier. They're like okay. if this then that. If yeah, you're yeah. familiar yep. with them, same same kind of company, and they're a company that lives on APIs. Yep. That's all they they you know they connect to one service layer and then make an automated connection between. 
uh, let's say, Twitter and Facebook. Anytime something happens on Twitter, I want you to do this thing on Facebook, and they make yeah. these connections, all API-driven. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's the first thing I do when I'm on a, you know, make a new account to something, or you know, I scroll to the bottom to see if they have that little developer's link, you know. Click that developer's link, and it's api.whatever.com. I'm like, perfect, yes, there's APIs. <laughs> so I can do what I want to do with this yeah. site versus, you know, use just what they have. And, yeah. and I think that's the... That is the power with anything is being able to uh, provide your data or your services in a lot of different mediums without having to re-architect the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, or direct access yep. to the data. Which if from, you have to re-architect the whole thing in that case, you probably built it wrong to begin with, yeah, and it should right, be re-architected. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, anything as we kind of come in for a landing here, anything? Uh, let me ask you a forward-facing future question. What are you excited about when, we, when you think about the next couple years? What are you seeing in technology? Not even necessarily related to what we've talked about yeah. here, but what are you excited about when it comes to technology? Um, you know, I, I think it. I, I think the web is the most exciting thing in the way that because uh, every day it's evolving in the way that we're able to work with services and, and uh, you know and consume our content wherever we want to consume. I think it's going to be interesting with. Uh, the plethora of devices that are coming out, you know, now with Apple's rumored devices, which you know are they are announcing shortly, but yeah. they, we still don't officially very, know what they soon, are. Very soon, right? In yeah. a couple days. Yeah, here. yeah. yeah. I think it, yep, I think it's a couple days from now. So, you know, they they used to always be really hard nosed in their screen resolutions and what they're providing, and now there's going to be bigger phones and potentially bigger iPads, and and you know, we're we're becoming into a world where devices really don't matter. It doesn't matter what you're on, and it's kind of fun to see the development processes around that change to mm -hmm. uh, to accommodate that and, and to us stop, you know, having that discussion of like, okay, well, we need an app or we need a site. Well, let's build it so it works on the iPhone first and then we'll move on. Well, yeah. Android is, you know, I think iOS is 35% of the market. Android is 50% of the market, right. you know. And so Android's the more popular platform. What people buy on iPhones. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The stat about zero, zero apps a month being downloaded, you know, right, like that's right. a, it doesn't matter. Nobody's where you're downloading your apps. Nobody's buying, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, except, you know, for those individual productivity. I mean, everything's software as a service nowadays anyway, right? right. Ten bucks a month right. gets you this, you know. Yes. Uh, but I think the, you know, the exciting thing is how, you know, we're seeing traditional web uh, presence merging with, you know, mobile development that really took off, you know, in the late 2000, or late like 2009-2010 eras, um, and now we're kind of back to this agnostic little world of just build your content, get yeah. it up online, make it work right, and you know there isn't really um, right or wrong answers right now, but it's all about people coming up with the most creative solutions. Yeah, is the tablet going to make it in your mind? Is it going to be an intermediate <laughs> device because it seems like a big rush to tablets, and now we're we're yeah. since phones have gotten so big. Well, I'm 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 I'm, I'm Biased because I'm a developer, yeah. you know. I, I'm not a, I'm just a, not a home user, right. non-technical sort of. In, but my iPad, I, I watch videos on it. That's about it, you know. Maybe catch up on Twitter while I'm laying in bed, you know, because it's a bigger screen than my phone. Yeah. But I don't even bring my iPad on this right. trip right. because you know I've got my laptop, I've got my phone, and you know, <laughs> tablets, you know, at least certain tablets just aren't productive enough for yeah. me. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're not. Uh, uh, they're not that much more productive than my phone, right. and their limitation between that and my laptop is so much easier for me to pop open my laptop and, yeah. and actually respond to what I need to respond to. Or, you know, until I can actually develop really seamlessly on a tablet, yeah. <laughs> for me, they're they're just kind of a toy. Yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah. what it is, and I mean they have great applications in you know uh, 
sales, you know, people walking around a, right. a big box store with a tablet helping customers, like, you know, those kinds of things where that becomes a really lightweight tool, point and shoot, you know, uh, checking in for different things, you know, that, that, there's obviously business use cases where they, where they make sense. But, but you're not going to go out in the evening and carry your tablet. No, you know, not, you're not going to, it's, it, 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 it's just interesting that had its day and now it's fading it, a little bit. We is. may see some new things come out that revive tablets. Oh, and, and it's always kind of exciting to see what, you know, because uh, Apple for a long time has always been kind of pushing the envelope, you know, for better or worse in some cases and how we want yeah. and what and what we want or knowing what we want before we want it. And, and so, you know, watching them to see if they're starting to recognize right. any shift in that and... And, you know, now it's kind of we've moved to that wearable realm where, mm -hmm. like, you know, it's all about smart watches and this kind of thing. And I, you know, uh, until they start making wearables not look like you're in Star Trek or something, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of really not too yeah. into them. Like yeah, the, the it's still niche. Yeah, the Google Glass thing, you know, every time I see one, I'm just kind of like, oh, you know, maybe know. someday I'll get used to it. I suppose it's the way that people thought about, like, clothing, you know, like, you know and that kind of you know, No, I don't <laughs> think it is. I think like, glass is interesting. Like, people wearing that? Oh, well, yeah. I guess that's cool, you know, so. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it'll take on, but you know, there's, you know, I, I really think like wearables shouldn't should be, you know, not used, not noticed. Like they, right. they, they should be seen. Well, that's the know. problem with Bluetooth headsets, and oh yeah, you, you know, you're like, you, you don't want to see them, you don't mm -hmm. want to, right? I mean, the geeks, it's a geek thing, yep. right? Um, so, uh, you know what I find interesting? You were you were talking about with both with Apple and with Microsoft, both have CEOs or had CEOs. That were very restrictive, and they both moved to two new CEOs, both Tim Cook and Satya Nadella. That, that, very that all of a sudden it's like we need to be everywhere. Yep. Uh, Android maybe being the opposite, where they're actually probably employing more standards than yeah. they have. Well, well it, and, and really, I think it, it, it it's a it's a product of a, a, at least in the Apple Android sort of realm of their history, where yeah. Android traditionally has been extremely fragmented. You know, there's mm -hmm. lots of different operating systems in the wild, lots of different devices in the wild, whereas Apple traditionally was, you want to buy a laptop? You get two choices. <laughs> you want to buy a desktop? You get one choice. Right. You, know, you want to buy a phone? We got one. You know, like you, you, it was a very tight ecosystem, and now that Apple has held on to that for a while and is branching out... Android at the same time has done a really great job of standardizing their platform and, yeah. and reeling in that fragmentation, making the latest version of Android, you know, the majority of the phones having mm -hmm. running that version. Um, so it, it's really changed the way that, yeah, I think that's helped Android yeah. become as popular right. as it is now. I mean, it's, it's funny to think, you know, that I mean, even though the iPhone still technically is the most popular individual device, the Android platform is blowing iOS off the yeah. water. Just a, in sheer a, numbers. Yeah, just in numbers. And, and, and who would and, have thought Samsung would have been as big of a player and they, as big of an influencer? Fantastic job. But, you know, well, they, they put out products that, you know, solve problems and, yeah. and, and, you know, have really met, they have not just copied, but have, you know, right. uh, bridged that gap. Yeah, so, they scratched the itch yep, is what they exactly did. Well, Dustin, thanks for taking a few minutes. Hey, it's, always it's always good to catch up with you. And, of course, uh, all of Dustin's information will be available right below the video uh, window here in the meta down below on YouTube. We'll include, I'll get back with you and get whatever that information you want it to be. And uh, you can contact him down below. Dustin, thanks again. Appreciate you watching. Thank, Thank you. you very much.